everybody. So um, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing uh, uh, how to study the Bible. I love this. I love this whole series. This series is just absolutely amazing. So if you haven't been a part of what we've been doing in the weeks past, make sure that you guys are uh, going ahead and uh, listening to the podcast um, because we are putting everything up there. We've got two weeks behind us already, uh, and with this one being rule number two, we've got 15 rules altogether. So this series is gonna last a little bit, and make sure that we've got uh, a study sheet. Everyone have a study sheet. Anyone need one? Good? Okay. All right. Thank you, uh, Vanna White, Andy. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, I, I love this series. This series for me changes everything. This series for me uh, is one where it... It really opens up your eyes. There's a lot of passages of scripture that people will take completely out of context and they'll end up in uh, different um, types of false doctrine uh, and they don't even really realize it. And most of the time it's because they were raised in a, in a family or in a church or in a denomination where they just weren't taught these things. And the same goes for me. When I was your guys' age, um, you know, I was taught how to study the Bible, but there were still some doctrinal errors in the church that I was in where I grew up. And it really wasn't until... Uh, I came to this church that I understood some of these things. Some of these things I already knew and I practiced, but it's, this changed it for me. Like there are certain things where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's why I believe that. That's why this part of the Bible says this over here. This makes perfect sense. And I started to get my hands around the entire scriptures. And so we spent some time over the course of the last year doing more devotional um, studies, and I wanted to get into something that's a little bit more studious. So at the bottom of your guys' study sheet, we have, a, we have a verse, and I haven't mentioned it yet so far in our study, but I want you to see this. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It says to study, to study. You know, a lot of, um, in fact, it's uh, pretty much all modern Bible translations, they remove the word study, and it says something completely different. And so in your Bible, it says to study, and God wasn't joking around. God wants you to study, because if you're not studying your Bible, you're not going to show yourself approved unto God. You're not going to be a workman. To be a workman, you have to study and rightly divide the scriptures properly. And God is a God of order, and it makes sense that he would have different rules to study his word and to keep it in context. You just can't take the Bible and make it say whatever you want. And a lot of people, are, they just do that. And there are many people that are part of churches that just believe whatever their pastors teach. And then as a result, they end up believing some crazy, crazy things rather than opening up the scriptures to make sure for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that what you're being taught is actually true. And just to show you this real quick before we get into the meat of what we're going to do, go over to Acts 17. Acts 17. Because this needs to be a pattern of your life. I wish we could trust pastors. I wish you could trust everything that I say, but I don't want you to. I'm going to try to do the best that I can to study to the best of my ability to give you the best that I, that I can possibly give you. And I'm going to be as accurate as possible. But at the end of the day, I am human and I'm going to make mistakes. And so I don't care who your pastor is. I don't care what your church is. I don't care where you go in the future or where you've been in the past. This needs to be something that every Christian, this has to be part of your life, that every Christian is going to do. Acts 17 Verse 10. Take a look at this. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they had received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed. And they didn't believe necessarily because of Paul. They took the things that Paul taught them, that Paul and Silas taught and preached, and they compared them with what does the Bible say. So they didn't just believe Paul just because it was Paul. Or they didn't believe Silas just because it was Silas. They believed them because what they actually compared, what they were being taught, they compared what they were being taught to what the scriptures actually say. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. There are so many students that graduate high school, they go off to college, they go off and do whatever, and they don't have a good handle on the Bible. They can't go to the Bible and actually prove what they believe. And as a result, they're blown around with every, every wind of false doctrine that's out there. You know, you go to, off to a college and you're faced with partying or you're faced with, you know, sexual immorality. And I mean, and you, you have those temptations in front of you. Okay, you don't drink. Why don't you drink? Okay, you don't have sex before marriage. Why? 
I mean, can you open up your Bible and say, I believe what I believe because of what this says here and what this says here and what this says here. This is not my opinion. This is what God has to say. This is why we're doing how to study the Bible. Because at the end of the day, when you stand before God, my opinion doesn't matter. When you stand before God and give an account for your life, my opinion does not matter. It's you, your relationship with God, you and the Lord, period. And he's going to hold you accountable for that. Now, there are certain things I'm going to be held accountable for, for sure. But you can't stand before God and say, I believe this about you because of him or because of her or because of that person or because of my family or because of. No, you can't do that. My dad is a very godly man and I love him and I respect him. But I don't believe what I believe because of my father. Our senior pastor, Tom, I love and I respect him, but I don't believe what I believe because of Pastor Tom. I believe what I believe because of what the Bible says. And you have to be able to get your hands on that. You've got to. Until you do, how do you know what you believe is actually true? You can't. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's our final authority. So we are, that's why we're doing this series. We've got to do this series. Okay. So we spent some time talking in our intro about how God and His Word can't be separated. The way you treat God is the way you're going to treat your... Bible, and the way you treat your Bible is the way you treat God. One and the same. One and the same. He, he and His Word cannot be separated. The same with you and your Word cannot be separated. And then lastly, we talked about the context factor. How you have to take every passage of Scripture within its proper context. Now give me the, uh, the three contextual things with, that we talked about. Anyone remember? The first thing was, what kind of context? Someone said it. Come on. What? Context. Yeah, I know. Which one? There was a blank context, blank context, and then there was a third one. Remote. remote was the second one. Yep. So there's remote context, which we'll talk about that in a minute, but what was the first one? Near. near, yes. So near context. So if you have a verse and you have uh, maybe even a chapter, the near context would be what? The verses surrounding it. So the verses in front of it, the verses behind it, the chapters before it, the chapters after it, where that sits within the whole book. Okay, and then the remote context would be books. where that book sits in the other books, where that book is positioned within the Bible, and other historical details. And then we talk about other contextual details, like knowing history, knowing some of the backdrops of everything, all that stuff is good. All right, so you have to take things in context. Con context. All right, number two. And this is what we're going to talk about tonight. The people group factor. This one is major, major, because there's a lot of people that mess this one up. And as a result, they get into all sorts of false doctrine. And we'll give you some examples a little bit later. So to understand the Bible, one must consider the people group to which God is specifically writing. Jews, Gentiles, and or the church of God. When God looks at humanity, he sees three groups of people. He sees Jews. He sees Gentiles, and he sees the church. Okay? So who are the Jews? God's people. Israelites from the nation of Israel. Who are Gentiles? Everybody else. All right? So there's the Jews, and then there's the Gentiles, and then there's the church. Yes, all believers, Jew and Gentile. Now, we'll talk about that here in a little bit because this is huge. But when God looks at that, when he looks at humanity, the, the whole scope of humanity, he sees three groups of people. And as a result, his word is written to mankind. So there are parts of your Bible that are written only to the Jews, not to you. There are certain parts of the Bible that are written only to Gentiles, not to Jews or the church. And there are certain parts of the Bible that are written only to the church, not to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that you can take certain parts of your Bible and benefit from those things. I can read in the book of Isaiah. Or I can read in First and Second Samuel about the history of Israel. And I can learn a lot of different things about God and his people and God's plan. But those books were not written to me. Just as a Jew could pick up the Bible... And even a Messianic Jew, all right? And we'll talk about that in a minute, because that's kind of an oxymoron, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So you have Jews, like an unsaved Jew, could pick up the New Testament, and they could read the epistles that Paul wrote to the church, but they're not written to them. 
it's written to the church. Now, if they become part of the church, now it's written to them. So it's kind of interesting. And this will change some of the dynamics of how you see different parts of Scripture. So we'll talk more about it. All right, give me uh, one, two, three, four volunteers to read some verses. Romans 1.16. Carson, do Romans 10, 12, and 13. Ethan, go ahead and do Galatians 3.28. And let's do one over here. Anybody over here? Got a lot of volunteers over here. Nada? Okay. All right, Gavin. Go ahead and take Colossians 3.11. Okay, I want you to listen to these three verses because these are, these are verses that, that hopefully this will help some things click with you when it comes to the church of God. Because if you have Jews and you have Gentiles, which is basically non-Jews, then what in the world is the church of God and how does that actually work? So Romans 1.16, listen to this one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay. So the gospel is given first to the Jew and then also to the Greek or to the Gentiles. So the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles both, right? Now here the next one, Romans 10, 12, and 13. There is no difference between the Lord, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so now it's talking about the gospel again, and it says there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek or the Gentile, that the same Lord is the same over all with both. Okay, so keep that in mind. And then the next one, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so hold that one. I might have you read that one again. And listen to Colossians 3.11 because it's very similar. Go ahead, Gavin. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all and in it all. Okay, so. Wasn't planning on this, we're going to do it. All right, so you have Jew, you have Gentile. Okay, those are the two groups of people. But then those two verses said something completely different. All right, so go ahead and read your list again. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so bond and free, male and female, was there any other ones, or is that it? That's it. Okay, and then yours. Go ahead and read that one. Uh, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarians, Corinthians, Okay, and then bond or free is repeated again. Okay, so I want you to see this. There are natural divisions within humanity, okay? Overall, when it comes to humanity, you have Jew and Gentile. You could, you could take the entirety of humanity and you can put them into those two camps. But then there's other divisions, bond or free. So there are bond, bond servants. Uh, this would be the whole concept of slavery. You could even talk about that. There are certain people that work for other people. The Bible never uses the term slavery. It's only used in the King James Bible one time. Um, and that's in, in, in relation to the nation of Israel. And it's in a negative context because he's being sarcastic in how he's speaking with the nation of Israel. But he uses bond or bond servant. A similar equivalent to this would be employer and employee. Like you have a job and you have a boss and you are the employee. You are a bond servant to that particular boss. Okay? So it works out to be the same way. So you have bond or free. You have male or female. You have circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, and Scythian. So now it gets into race. So it gets into where you sit in life as far as if you are a master or a servant, where it sits in your gender, male or female, where it sits in your culture, your circumcision or uncircumcision, and also culture when it comes to barbarian or Scythian, your nationality. Now, what it says in those particular passages is that in Christ, in the body of Christ, the moment someone accepts Christ as their Savior, they are no longer Jewish. They're no longer a Gentile. They're no longer bond or free or male or female or circumcision or uncircumcision or barbarian or Scythian. So in Christ Jesus, when you become born again, when you accept Christ as your Savior... You are, 1 Corinthians 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You are a brand new creature. You are so brand new through Jesus Christ, you've lost your race. You're a brand new race. You're a brand new creature. That's exactly what it says. Your lot in life, bond or free, it doesn't matter anymore. Male or female, it doesn't matter anymore. Circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. Barbarian, Scythian, it doesn't matter. God created a brand new thing called the church, the body of Christ. And when a person is born again, they are now in this body of Christ. That's incredible. 
That is unbelievable. And there's a lot of doctrinal implications that go along with that. So there are Jews, there are Gentiles, and then there is the church. If a Jew gets saved, it becomes part of the church. If the Gentile gets saved, it becomes part of the church. And once you're in the church, can you get out of the church? No. And become Jew or Gentile any longer? No. And there's a great example in nature. The whole caterpillar becoming a butterfly as a process of metamorphosis. Once a butterfly has been created out of the cocoon, or out of the chrysalis, can it go back and be a caterpillar again? No. No. It can't. So once you are born again and in the body of Christ, you can't reverse the process. That's incredible. And God has many, many examples from creation about that same, same truth. Okay, so here's the whole point. Now with God's definition of people groups, there are Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Should be clear by now. Everything in the Bible is written for us, but not everything in the Bible is written to us. You must consider the people group a Bible passage is written to in order to interpret the passage in its proper context. Because remember, 2 Peter 1.20 says that the Bible is not of any private interpretation. You can't just take one verse of the Bible and make it say whatever you want. I mean, you can, but you're going to be violating God in the process. All right, so let's talk about the people group examples. So what parts of the Bible are we talking about here? Okay, so take your Bible. We're going to do this thing that's called the Church of God Pinch. The Church of God Pinch. Okay, so I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to find the book of Romans. Find the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and then hold your spot there. Okay, and then hold your spot in Romans, and then go over to the book of Philemon. Philemon, Philemon. Titus, Philemon, then Hebrews. Okay, and then I want you to hold your Bible like so. Yeah, like this. Romans, Philemon, all right? So take that part of your Bible, hold it as such. <laughs> you lost it. You weren't pinching hard enough. <laughs> all right, everybody got it? Okay. I'm sorry. You should be. You should be very sorry. <laughs> Got it? Oh, come on. Come on, Isaac. Okay. All right. So, this portion of Scripture, these, this is the part of your Bible, if you look at the rest of it, this is the part of the Bible that is written directly to you. Directly to you. Everything in here, from Romans to Philemon, is written directly to you. Yes? When you say to Philemon, do you mean including Including Philemon? Philemon. Yes, we want to include Philemon. Yes? I remember some Tommy can also, you can include Acts 7. You could, if we're going to get super technical. But if we're just going to divide it by books, we're going to do this. And we'll talk about that in a minute, because we're going to hit Acts, and what's the deal with Acts? So we'll talk about that. So if we're going to divide it by books, if you're going to divide it by verse, then yes, I would go to Acts chapter 7, and then I would take it all the way through to Philemon. I would do that. But this is where we're talking about dividing it by books. It would be Romans. So this part of your Bible is written directly to you, and it is for you. Everything in it, you can take and apply it 100%. Done deal. That's a whole lot of the rest of your Bible that's not written directly to you. Now, it is profitable for you, and we're going to talk about how and why, but this is the part of your Bible that's written directly to you as far as your history, where we sit now in human history. Okay? So this should be a visual illustration of that. Hopefully you guys get that and you understand that. All right. So this would mean that only 13, that's your first blank there, there's only 13 out of 66 books in your Bible that are written directly to the church. There's only 13 out of 66 books in your Bible that are written directly to the church. Romans and First Thess- through First and Second Thessalonians are written directly to churches. When you see the opening uh, part of each of those books, you see Paul saying to the church that's in that area. So they are written directly to churches. First and Second Timothy and Titus are written to church pastors. 
So Romans through 1 and 2 Thessalonians are written directly to churches. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus were written directly to pastors. And Philemon is written from one Christian friend to another, Paul to Philemon. And that's why these ones are written directly to the church. Okay? Everybody got that so far? Okay. All right, number two, the Jewish books. All right, so Genesis to Amos, Micah, Habakkuk to Malachi are written directly to the Jews. Now, there's a little bit of skippage in there. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Genesis to Amos, and then including Micah, and then Habakkuk through Malachi are written directly to the Jews. In Romans 3, 2, it says that unto them are committed the oracles of God, and this is what God is referring to. Okay? So these are written directly to the Jews. In the New Testament, you got Matthew through John. They are written to the Jews, proving Jesus as a king, a servant, a man, and God. Now, this is very important because there's a lot of people that will get some crazy doctrinal beliefs out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there's a lot of things in those books that are incredible. But the church, according to Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians chapter 3, I want to say it was, the church did not begin until Christ died on the cross. It wasn't until his blood was shed on the cross that the church was born. So when Jesus is speaking in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He's not talking about the church. In fact, the thing that you see him talking about is the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew and the kingdom of God. And he is talking to Jews, to Jewish people about a Jewish kingdom because he is the Jewish Messiah. And there's a lot of people that will take things out of there and apply it to their life that they ought not to. And what's interesting about this is that when you take a look at uh, these books proving Jesus is king, servant, man, and God. Now, this lines up. This is really, really cool. This is, this is amazing. This is one of those little nuggets that's just amazing. So Matthew is written from the perspective that it proves Jesus is the Messiah, that he is their Messiah, he is their king, he is their king that they've been waiting for. And then Mark talks about Jesus as the servant and how he came to serve, which he, uh, Isaiah uh, 53 talks all about that. And then Luke is written from the perspective that proves that Jesus was a man. And then John was written to prove that Jesus was God. And there are seven specific miracles that prove the fact that Jesus was God come in the flesh. And interestingly enough, the four Gospels also line up with the cherubim that surround the throne of God. Because the cherubim that surround the throne of God, they also have four faces. They have a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. The lion represents Jesus as the king. The ox represents Jesus as a man. Uh, the man represents Jesus as a man. The ox represents him as a servant, sorry. And then the man represents Jesus as a, as a man. And the eagle represents Jesus as God. And so it's really neat how all that lines up in Scripture. It's absolutely fascinating. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the Catholic cherubim. I'm talking about the legitimate cherubim that actually surround God's throne. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Andy used to be Catholic, so he's he he, he tends to slip back. What's that? Yeah, oh, they're nice. Okay, all right, all right, all right. So Matthew through John are written to the Jews to prove that Jesus is a King, servant, man, and God. And then the New Testament, Hebrews through Jude are also considered Jewish epistles. They're also called the general epistles, if you were to study this in theology classes. But Hebrews through Jude are Jewish epistles because there's, a more, there's more of a Jewish approach to them. And so here's some examples of what I mean by the Jewish approach or a Jewish flavor to these books. Think about Hebrews. What does the term Hebrew mean? No, yeah. How does Moses make coffee? Hebrews dead. No, we're not <laughs> Hebrews. It's the Jewish people. So the title of the book means it's written to them. And the whole purpose of Hebrews is to prove that Jesus is better than all the things the Old Testament has to offer, the Levitical law. That he is better than all of it. Uh, in Galatians 2, uh, 7 through 9, Peter, James, and John, who are the authors of uh, several of these books that are in here from, from Hebrews through Jude, uh, Peter, James, and John were called pillars of the church in Jerusalem. They were mainly Jewish men, and they were born-again believers, but Peter was called the apostle unto the Jews. And so it's not surprising to see that Peter, James, and John wrote books that were primarily Jewish in nature. And then James 1.1 says to the twelve tribes that were scattered abroad, in the very first verse, the twelve tribes, which are the Jews the Jewish people. And then in 1 Peter 1, 1, it says to the strangers 
scattered throughout. It's written to the same group of people, the 12 tribes scattered to the strangers scattered abroad to the Jewish people. Yes? It's both, whatever you want to call it. I label it both in my Bible. It's the Jewish epistles and it's the general epistles. But I put Jewish in there because of these four reasons. The title of Hebrews, what's said about most of the authors in these parts of this part of your Bible in Galatians 2, 7 through 9, James 1, 1, and 1 Peter 1, 1. And what's interesting is that once you start to understand that, you can really see how Hebrews through Jude, this is incredible, I'm telling you, this is absolutely incredible. The books Hebrews through Jude are going to be used heavily by the Jewish people during the tribulation. After we are raptured out of here, when the world is going nuts with all the stuff that it talks about in the book of Revelation, Hebrews through Jude are going to lead more Jewish people to saving faith in Jesus Christ than any other part of your Bible, with the exception of Matthew. Because if you think about it, Matthew proves that Jesus is the king. And there are so many Old Testament references that go back and say Jesus fulfilled it here. He fulfilled this. He fulfilled that. He fulfilled that. Matthew points back to the Old Testament. It's the perfect transitional book for people to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that actually came the first time. And then Hebrews proves that Jesus was the Messiah through all the Old Testament feasts, all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the Old Testament high priestly rituals and everything. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So Hebrews through Jude are going to be used heavily by the Jewish people uh, during the tribulation to lead them to save faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Alright, and then you got the Gentile books. The Gentile books. There's only three in your Bible. Obadiah is a book written to the Gentiles. It declares the prophecy of God's judgment on Edom due to their ill treatment of Israel. So Edom, where did the nation of Edom come from? Anybody know? Edom? Yeah. Yeah, 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 Jacob and Esau. Yeah, Esau, the descendants of Esau became the nation of Edom. And so Edom hated Israel. And so God rebukes Edom through the book of Obadiah. Jonah details Jonah's call to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, to preach a message of repentance. Has nothing to do with the nation of Israel, but God sends a Jewish prophet to go and preach a message to the Ninevites. And then Nahum declares a prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh at the peak of Assyrian power. So those three books in your Old Testament are the Gentile books that are found in your Bible that are written directly to Gentiles. All right, and then let's talk about Acts and Revelation. Okay, Acts. So we kind of left out part of that, like Carson was talking about. We could go to Acts 7, but let's talk about this. So the book of Acts is a book that records the historical events that transitioned the plan of God away from Israel to the church. It first begins in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 6, then to Antioch, then throughout the known world. Chapters 1 through 15 focus on the Apostle Peter preaching repentance to the Jewish nation and the leaders. Not once in the first 15 chapters is the word church used or even being born again or Christian. It doesn't show up anywhere in Acts 1 through 15 because they had no idea what that even meant. And then chapters 15 through 28 focus almost completely on the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Jews and Gentiles in the formation of the church. And so that's why a lot of people pull uh, certain verses out of the book of Acts, like you, know, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. They use Acts 2.38. Um, they also go to Acts chapter 2 to talk about you know, the doctrine of speaking in tongues, um, which I have an example of that with one of the things you guys are going to work through. And they pull a lot of those things out there. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Because if you were to really examine the book of Acts and you were to want to get your doctrine for baptism out of the book of Acts, I could go to the book of Acts and give you like about 16 different ways that people are baptized. They're saved and then they're baptized they're baptized and they're saved then they're baptized and then uh, their hands are laid upon them and then they speak in tongues and then they're saved and then it's all over the place there's no consistent standard and the reason is is because of the context of each of those scenarios there's something that's going on there that you need to study it out but a lot of people don't do that so the book of Acts is not a book that you want to get major doctrinal, um, really anything doctrinal from. It's a transitional book. And there are things that are moving away from the nation of Israel into the church. All right, and then let's talk about Revelation. The book of Revelation continues where Acts left off with chapters 1 through 3 detailing church history from 90 AD to the present day. Now, this is absolutely amazing. This was one of those things where all of a sudden it was like a light bulb went off in my mind. And I'll explain to you for a second. I want to give you as much time as I can, but these things are too good to pass up, so I've got to talk about it because it's just amazing. Okay, so 
Growing up in church, this was, this was my perspective. And I talk about this when we talk about church history. So you see all the events from Adam and Eve, the beginning of humanity, and even events beforehand, but we'll just start with Adam and Eve. You have Adam and Eve, and you have the beginning of humanity, and then it kind of works your way through all of the Old Testament. Then you start to get into the New Testament. Then you have the book of Acts, where you have people that are born again, and now the church begins, and then Paul, and then the end of Paul's ministry, and then it's like almost like silent. Like you don't have any other details of what's going on. Yeah, you got the epistle written to the, the church in Rome, but Rome could actually be placed somewhere in the book of Acts. You got Corinthians, but that could be placed somewhere in the book of Acts. You can take Thessalon- the Thessalonians uh, books, and that could be placed in the book of Acts. Timothy, in the book of Acts. Ephesians, Colossians, all those are written within the time frame of Acts. So in my mind, this is crazy, whenever you're taught church history, like in school and stuff, it's almost like, yeah, Christianity just kind of continued. So you have the Apostle Paul, and then it just kind of continued. And then, you know, stuff kind of happened or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the Roman Catholic Church started, uh, just came up out of nowhere. But then it wasn't until like 1517, 1518, when? Who? Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door about all the grievances that he had against the Roman Catholic Church. Then the Reformation happened. Hold on a second. Like, what just happened? We went from Paul... And then, and now Martin Luther. And now things are going to be set straight. What? So there's this big cloud of confusion. What happened in between? No one seems to know. Except God knew and he gave you all of human history found in your Bible. So your Bible is the timeline of all human history. All of it. From beginning to end. You go from Genesis all the way through, you hit the end of Acts. And guess where Acts leaves off and then picks back up? Revelation chapter 2. You can almost pick up immediately. Revelation chapter 2 begins the seven letters of the seven churches. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, you have details of human history that happened from the apostles all the way through church history, even through Martin Luther, all the way up till today into the future until the rapture of the church that takes place in Revelation chapter 4. So you actually have all of human history found in your Bible. All of it. God did not leave anything out. And if you think that's crazy, come and talk to me later. We can go through Revelation 2 and 3 and you can see all the major events of human history from after the apostles all the way through through the dark ages into the Philadelphian church period which is the greatest time of modern missions that this world has ever seen into our time today the Laodicean church period where people are falling away from God they want nothing to do with the Bible no one's, everyone is so consumed with themselves and they think they're serving God when in reality they're not at all and then the rapture takes place in Revelation chapter 4. Turn to Revelation. I want you to see this. Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. All right. So you have the intro, chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins this part of church history. And it goes all the way through chapter 3. And then take a look at chapter 4. After this, so after church history is ended, after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the voice which I heard that in the first voice, which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and it describes the throne and then chapter 5 it talks about the people all around God's throne and then you have the continuation of the rest of the details of the book of Revelation about all the tribulation that's going to happen upon the earth verse 1 and verse 2 is the rapture of the church because the first thing that we see because it says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when God speaks he, his voice sounds like a trumpet he's going to call you out by name and you're going to be immediately in his presence and the first thing that you're going to see outside of seeing Jesus face to face is you're going to see God's throne and everybody else surrounding the throne of God and that begins where we're at as far as in Revelation so this is incredible so chapter 2 chapter 3 gives you from 90 AD all the way up until today and into the future until the rapture takes place in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2. And then you have the continuation of everything else in the book of Revelation. It's amazing. So chapter 4, picking up where we just left off, begins with the rapture of the church. Chapters 5 through 22 
focus on the Jews and the Gentiles remaining on the earth, the tribulation, the thousand-year reign of the Messiah on the earth, the final judgment, the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, and eternity future. And here's why this is so important. You've got to get the people groups down, Jew, Gentile, and the church. Here's why. You're already in Revelation. I want you to take a look at Revelation 2, verse 8 and 9. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. So here you have people that they're calling themselves Jews when they're not. And God specifically says these people that call themselves Jews when they're really not, they're of the synagogue of Satan. Hold that thought. Go over to chapter 3. Take a look at verses 7 through 9. And the, to the angel of the church of Phil, in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So that's interesting. And Romans 11.25. Someone look that up. Romans 11.25. Real quick. Carson, go ahead and do that one real quick. So there's a big problem with Jesus saying that there are people that say that they're Jews when they're really not. They take parts of the Bible that apply to the Jew and they apply it to themselves and in doing so, they become part of the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan. Like, that's where Satan is worshipped. That's where he loves to be worshipped, where God is blasphemed. So you have to be careful. Because if you take parts of your Bible that are meant for the Jews, and then you apply it to yourself, all of a sudden now you find yourself believing doctrines and doing things within the church that are actually part of the synagogue of Satan. And this is a big problem with Christians today. Read in Romans 11.25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, is in, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become Okay, so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant or wise in your own conceits, which means you think that you're smarter than God. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles become in. God is not done with the nation of Israel. So don't you be taking parts of your Bible that belong to them and you steal it away and you now apply it to yourself. Because if you do that, you're going to be part of the synagogue of Satan, which from when I last time I checked, I think it's like probably, probably a negative thing. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a stretch. I don't want to be part of the synagogue of Satan. I don't want to be part of the church of Satan. So I need to be careful that I'm not taking those passages and then applying them to myself. And there's a lot of people that do that. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I wanted to split up in groups, and I want you guys to be able to work this stuff out on your own. But I want to take an example, and because of the time that we have left, we ran out, and there's not going to be enough time for you guys to properly dive into some of this stuff, and then for us to talk about it. So I want to do it together. I want to take a look at a couple more examples together of what I'm talking about. Okay? Psalm 51. Go to Psalm 51, verse 11. Psalm 51. But I, I still want you guys to try to work some of these things out on your own. So take some of these examples, and I want you to try to see this for yourself. You'll probably see it as we're working through it, hopefully. If not, and it just causes more questions, just come and talk to me about it, and we can, we can work through it. Okay, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. All right. Take a look at verse 11. Okay, so David is speaking, and verse 10, we'll back it up just one verse to get some context. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Okay, what's going on in Psalm 51? Somebody give me some historical context details. Ethan. After David and Bathsheba, and he killed her husband. Yes. Yes. So David, we got it all. It's all good. So David was supposed to be out in battle, and he wasn't. Instead, he was at his palace, decided to walk out on the roof. And while he is walking out on the roof, he sees Bathsheba bathing herself on the rooftop of her house. 
Now, her husband, Uriah, is out at the battle. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. It was his duty. And so here he sees her. He lusts after her. He calls men to go and get her to bring her back so then he can have sex with her. He does it. And then she goes back to her house. And then a little bit while later, she sends him a note and says, um, David, I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, all right. So then what does he do? He frames the story. He brings Uriah back and he tries to get Uriah to sleep with his own wife so that way they can say, see, it's actually your baby because you had sex with your wife and now you're having a child. Congratulations. So he's trying to cover up the sin. But what did Uriah do? No. No way. How can I do that? My comrades, my, my soldiers, my fellow soldiers are, are, are fighting. And how can I go home and be with my wife when men are dying? I can't do that. He was an honorable man. David's like, Ugh. all right, so what can I do? All right, so I'll fatten him up. I'll get him nice and sleepy, and I'll send him home. So he does this, does this big feast, gives him all the stuff, tries to send him home. Does he do it? No, he doesn't. He sleeps outside. So again, he's very honorable. So he doesn't do it. And so David's like, ah. Okay, there's only one more option. I want you to put him on the front of the hottest battle. I want him to be smitten and I want him to die. Because then if he's dead, then I can take Bathsheba and she can become my wife and then we can have this child. No big deal. (laughs) So it happens. They put him on the front line of the hottest battle and then Uriah's killed. They send word back and he's like, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Is it blah, 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 whatever. Takes Bathsheba after she was done mourning for the death of her husband and decides to marry her. Okay, is God going to let his king get away with that? No. Then Samuel, not Samuel, sorry, Nathan comes along. Nathan comes to him and says, hey, I want to tell you a story. And he gives him the story. And he's like, what do you think about that? And David's like, and he gets so mad. He's like, there's no way that's going to happen. And Nathan looks right back at him and says, you're the man. This is exactly what you just did to Uriah. This is exactly what you just did to Bathsheba. You are wrong and you are a dead man. I mean, he's literally a dead man. If you were to go into the Old Testament and find out what are the consequences of murder, sleeping with someone else's wife, lying about it, it would be death penalty, death penalty, death penalty. And Nathan said, but don't worry, God's put away your sin. However, there is some repercussions for your decisions. The baby's going to die. And there's actually several other things that happen. If you go into the Old Testament law, you'll find out there are other consequences that unfolded. So here you have this scenario. He's a dead man. He does not deserve to live. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God did not permanently indwell people like he does today. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 talks about that when you hear the gospel and you believe it and you call upon God to save you, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of redemption. He moves in and he seals you. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. When something seals you, you can't be unsealed. I use this example. Go to the grocery store. How many of you like pickles? I love pickles. All right. Or what about potato chips? Okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So would you go, would you go to the store? Think of your favorite food. Maybe it's hummus. I love hummus. And And would you go to the store and you would say, oh, an open jar of pickles. Maybe I can get it on clearance. Or, oh, it's an open bag of chips. Or... Whoops, this hummus just apparently had been dropped. The seal's been broken. No big deal. I can just... Who would do that? I know there's probably... Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah. You'd, you'd learn. Food poisoning and you'd learn not to do that. No, we wouldn't do that. Why? It is... Disgusting. Unsealed. <laughs> it's unsealed. It's not, it was properly sealed at one point, and now it's unsealed, which means it can be contaminated. The moment you're saved, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of redemption. You're sealed by Him. Ephesians 4.30, you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Is the Holy Spirit just going to let you become unsealed again? He doesn't do that, because when God does something, He does it perfect. But here, during this time, David could have lost his salvation. He could have lost the Spirit. And so when he said in verse 11, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. That was legit. He was asking God, don't take your Spirit from me, like He took it away from Saul. Because that's exactly what happened with Saul. God took his spirit away from Saul, and he was a miserable man until the day of his death. So, people look at this verse and say, see, you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. This happened at a different time in history where things were different. Christ had not died yet. He was not buried. He did not raise from the dead. The Spirit of God did not permanently indwell people until after that happened. This is what we talked about. Jew, Gentile, and now 
Those things don't happen any longer. You are now born again as a brand new creature. Okay, so there's that one. Okay, now let's go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This one's one that I can do rather quickly. Um, it might be a little bit confusing, and if you have some questions about it, we can talk about it. But Acts chapter 2 is a passage that a lot of people go to um, for baptism in order to be saved. And I mentioned this a little bit about speaking in tongues. And, um, and I've gotten in some discussions. Um, I try not to make them heated discussions. I just kind of point them back to what the Bible says. Because again, remember, it's not about my opinion. It's about what the Bible says. And what's, what's being practiced today in a lot of charismatic Pentecostal churches is a form of speaking in tongues that is a, it's almost like a gibberish that you can't understand. It's an unintelligible language. And so one of the first things that I talk about when we talk about charismatic doctrines is I talk about what's happening today in those churches is not biblical tongues. And I go to this, this passage Again, this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible says. And I show this passage because once you look at this passage, it makes it abundantly clear that speaking in tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues, is not an unintelligible language. It is a supernatural ability to speak a language that you previously did not know. And you can see that right within the context. So we're going to be using the context rule, and we're going to be using the people group rule on this one. All right? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord in one place. Who was all together with one accord in one place? Who were they? The Jews that... It's probably my child. <laughs> the Jews that believed that Jesus was their Messiah. All right, I knew we'd get there eventually. Okay, so the Jews that believed that Jesus was a legitimate Old Testament, which of course to them wasn't Old Testament, it was just the Testament, um, I guess. <laughs> so that they believed that he was their Messiah. Okay, verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so in this room, there's this rush of wind. The Spirit comes in and there's an appearance of this cloven, tire, or cloven tongue like as a fire and it sat upon each of them. And then they were filled with the Holy Ghost, which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen in John 13, 14, 15, 16. He talked about the promise of the, of the Spirit of God was going to be sent. He had to go up and ascend and He was going to send the Spirit of God. And He says that He will be with you and He shall be in you. So Jesus even said that this was going to happen. And now they have this gift of tongues, this cloven tongues is a fire. They were, they were given, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit of God gave people the ability to speak other tongues, okay? And it says, as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So he was the one that gave them that ability. Now take a look at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem who? Jews. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. So Jewish people that resided in many different nations surrounding. Okay? Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Okay, so here you have this scenario, okay? These people that were in the upper room, they were Galileans, primarily from the area of Galilee, which means that they spoke what? Galilee. <laughs> no, no, Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew, all right? Now, they spoke Hebrew. People that were not from Galilee, but were from all these other nations. So just pick some of the surrounding nations. There's a full list of them right there in verse 9. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt, in parts of Libya and Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. Okay, so we can pick any one of those nations. So let's pick Arabian. Let's pick Parthians. Let's pick the Medes. And let's pick um, in Egypt, okay? Or the, the Phrygia. We'll say a little Phrygia, all right? So all these different places, they spoke different languages, different dialects as part of their native tongue. Now, they were still Jews that lived there, right? Because that's what it said. But just like in today, people that move here, what do they have to learn in order to properly function in our society? 
English. If you moved to Paris, what would you have to learn to properly function in Paris? French. If you had to move to Mexico City, what would you have to learn to properly adjust to life in Mexico City? Spanish. What about Argentina? Argentine. Portuguese. Very good. All right. So, if you were to go, if you were to go around all those areas and you were to you were to live there, you would have to learn their language. You just have to because it's native to those peoples to those countries. But you would still speak your own language. There's plenty of people that can speak English, but yet their household they speak Spanish or they they speak this language and they, that happens all the time. Okay. Yes. Except for Hawaiian. Okay. They will yell at you if you speak Hawaiian in their own country. Okay. <laughs> their own country, because they're not part of the United States. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So, so with that example set, I want you to I want you to get this picture. All right. So the Jews from those other nations all came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. These Galileans that did not speak the language of the Arabians, the Elamites, the Parthians, all this, they did not speak it natively. All of a sudden, come out of that house speaking these different languages. And so these people hear it, and they're saying. Wait a minute. Why are we hearing them preach in the native tongue wherein we were born? They're not speaking Hebrew. We hear them speaking like the native tongue of the Elamites. We hear them speaking the native tongue of the Parthians, of the Arabians, of the Cretes. We hear them speaking in those languages. They've gotten my attention. What's going on here? I know these dudes cannot speak that dialect. They can't. There's no way. That happened. Okay, And that's the example that they gave right here. Verse 8, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. So the gift of tongues is the supernatural ability for you to be able to speak in a language and a specific dialect that you had no idea of prior. It would be like God giving me the ability to all of a sudden speak Mandarin. I do not know how to speak Mandarin. I struggle a little bit with Spanish. I can get by. I can survive. If I was dropped in the middle of Mexico, I could survive. I would, I would struggle, but I would survive. But you drop me in the middle of China, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Drop me in Paris, nope. I took one year of French when I was in seventh grade, and I can't remember a lick of what I learned. Okay? I don't know any of that. So if God were to give me the gift of tongues, it would be the ability to supernaturally speak a language that I previously did not know. So that's that, okay? That's within that particular context. And what is the purpose of tongues? We said this last week, Mark 16. Anyone remember? Some of you guys had Mark 16. Yeah. Signs and wonders and the Jews. Yes. And it was to... Go ahead and turn there. Mark 16. Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. So Jesus says in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And then he lists them. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. There it is, new tongues. Something that they didn't know otherwise because it's new to them. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere. What did they preach? The gospel. Not where. Yeah. They preached the gospel everywhere. They preached the word of God everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word with signs following. The purpose of these sign gifts was to confirm the word that was being spoken, that this word was actually from God and not made up by some man. This is the pattern that God says for signs. The very first time you find signs in the Bible, we mentioned this last week, is with Moses. Moses was intimidated to go back to his people and say, um, Hey, so um, God sent me to deliver you. And uh, they're like, yeah, right, whatever. Because what happened last time Moses went? Yeah, they rejected him. God sent you? Forget it. You grew up in the king's palace. You don't know anything about what life's down here. You think God sent you to deliver us? Forget it. So Moses is now intimidated. And he's like, God, I can't go to them. They're not going to hear me. And God's like, okay, fine. I'll give you three signs. Okay, first one, 
You're going to throw your rod on the ground and you're going to pick it up and it's going to be a snake when you put it on the ground. You pick it up by the tail, which by the way, don't ever pick up a snake by the tail. You're going to pick it up by the tail and it's going to become a rod again. Okay, that was sign number one. Sign number two was the gift of healing. And that was take his hand, put it in his little tunic, shirt, whatever, pull it out and it was leprosy. And then put it back in and pull it out and it was healed. And the third one is to take water and pour it on the ground and it would become blood. Those are the three signs. And God said, Moses, go and tell the people I sent you. Do those three signs and they will follow you. The sign was to confirm God's word that Moses was sent to them. That is the first time that signs is used in the Bible. That's what it's always been meant for. And that's what it was meant for here. God is doing something new. Go preach the gospel everywhere. And I'm going to give you signs that are going to confirm that word that it actually came from me and not something you made up yourself. So that's the whole purpose of it. Because the Jews... Don't just believe someone just because it makes sense. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews require a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. 1 Corinthians 14.22, it says very specifically there that, um, oh, what is it? I just lost it. Uh, Tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. So tongues are for unbelievers to believe that God is doing something and specifically unbelieving Jews when you compare it back to 1 Corinthians 1.22. Okay, so that's why it's important to know what's going on in the people groups that, are, that, are, uh, that things are being spoken to at that point in time. Because Acts chapter 2, nowhere in there, nowhere in there in Acts chapter 2 is he speaking to the church. They're not saying anything about being born again. They're not talking about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. None of it. In fact, when you go through Peter's message, you find out you killed the Messiah. You Jewish people killed the Messiah, and now there's nothing left for us. You killed the one that we've been waiting for this whole time, and now there's nothing. It has nothing to do with being born again. You won't even see it once mentioned. And this is what a lot of people don't do. They don't read the details of what's going on and take it in its context and consider people groups. Okay. So those are just two big examples. Acts 2 is a little bit more complex, but it is a really good one to take into consideration. All right, so we are done. Um, Any questions about those particular examples or anything else right now? Okay, that's a lot to chew on. Yeah, go ahead. language. Well, it says the Spirit gave that gift to them as He wanted. So there is a room of approximately, I think it was 120 people in the upper room. There would have been people that would have been from all these other nations. Based on that context and the way that it's worded, I think the Spirit gave different people the ability to speak certain dialects, certain languages. That way, when they went out into the city and they began to preach about Jesus Christ, they were preaching in all the languages that would cover the entire city. So, but I think that they themselves may not have understood that they were speaking that language. You know what I mean? Like if I had the supernatural ability to just speak Mandarin like that, I I might think that I'm just speaking English, but the way that it's being heard is Mandarin. And that's why you have tongues. And then in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 14, specifically 14, talks about the interpretation of tongues. Because sometimes that gift was exercised in a group of people where no one spoke that language. And so then God would then supernaturally give someone the ability to understand that language and then interpret it for everybody else. Okay. Any other questions? All right. So that was a little bit of a deeper one. So hopefully that wasn't too much of a challenge. But that is a great example on how you need to make sure that you understand who you're talking to. Because once you know who the audience is, then you can understand the details surrounding that chapter a little bit better. And you're like, oh, okay, perfect. That's why, that's why it unfolded that way. So, okay. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. Let's get someone to pray. And then we shall be done. So who would like to pray? Close this out. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Who's going at it? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We got a challenger. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam, go ahead. <laughs> Dear Father, I just thank you for today. Lord, just thank you that we got to all just come and hang out as a youth group, Lord, but more importantly, get to hear your word preached. Um, Lord, I pray just going through the How to Study the Bible series, Lord, and each specific rule, Lord, that we'd apply it to when we dive into your word. Um, and just hitting the context factor and the people factor, Lord, uh, these last two weeks, Lord, um, I pray that we start using those right off the bat, but also, Lord, just um, going through the rest of the week um, with school, that we can be a light into the lost world, and hey, maybe uh, questions even get brought up 
and now we can go back to these resources of um, you know the context and also what people or what people group you were speaking to Lord so I pray for opportunities throughout the week for um, all of us Lord I also pray for just the different ministry opportunities whether it's Bible studies Lord or just hanging out as a youth group whether they can be glorifying you Lord and that your will would be done through them um, Lord I pray that we can just glorify you I pray this in Jesus name Amen Amen, Amen. Amen. Amen.